0: Chapter 50 Louisa and I are driving through the French countryside in a rented Opel Zafira, heading towards the city of Calais. We had landed in Paris only a couple of hours before and decided to take the back roads toward the famous port city situated 21 miles across the English Channel from Dover. When people talked or wrote about Calais nowadays, It wasn't about the city's rich heritage, or its fine lace industry, or its watchtowers, forts, and museums, nor about Rodin's famous bronze, the Burgers of Calais, standing majestically in front of its town hall. Sadly, Calais was now referred as home to the jungle, the makeshift camp where the worlds disenfranchised and persecuted were holed up in miserable colonies, living a modern, hand-to-mouth version of the Dark Ages. Ripped from their homes and belongings, forced to flee from every corner of the globe, these diverse and incompatible peoples, call them what you will, exiles, emigrants, or refugees, shared one common goal, finding a safe place to work and raise their families. Their golden fleece was asylum in the UK, where so many others before them had been given the opportunity to restart their godforsaken lives. They were willing to jump on trucks, grab onto moving trains, sneak onto ferries, anything, no matter the risk to their lives, in order to cross the English Channel to the Promised Land. Louisa is asleep next to me in the shotgun seat, her head leaning against the window. I glance at her catnapping face and the heart-wrenching truth becomes evident to me. I can't live another day of my life without her at my side. We have morphed into one being. All I can think about is pulling off the road into one of the sunflower fields we're passing by, covering her with passionate kisses and joining our bodies into one. For the first time in my life, I'm not in charge of my own destiny. Love is. Her love. Oh God, I don't want to lose her. Ever. I'm driving now from my vantage up in the air. But it seems as if the car is going where it wants to, and I'm just following along from high above. With my view, I see our rented car veering off the road as if in slow motion and heading into a field of sunflowers. Then I'm back in the driver's seat, braking calmly, bringing the car to a stop in head-high sunflower plants. I turn to Louisa, who is sitting up and laughing. The car doors open and she takes off through the field, running joyfully like that day at Bear Mountain. Every time we find ourselves in the country, we want to run and play. I hurry after her impatient to hold her in my arms again. She's up ahead, but I can't see her through the countless stands of sunflowers. I'm running hard, chased by buzzing bees and dusted by showers of dark yellow pollen from the shaken sunflowers. I somehow get one last glimpse from on high. The field we're in looks like a single patch of a golden quilt. Suddenly, I stumble on an irrigation pipe and fall down on the ground. Louisa continues running, and I'm happy for her. I turn onto my back and look up through the towering sunflower plants and try one last time to imagine myself up high, soaring above everything on my hand-gliding heart. But that vision disappears in a flash when I hear Louisa's terrifying scream somewhere in front of me. I jump to my feet because her scream is anything but playful. It's panicky and aching. I hear a second, more desperate call for help. I start running through the field of sunflowers towards her cries. Something has gone terribly wrong. I come out into an open patch of land bordered by a row of tall cypresses. Louisa is standing next to a ditch at the far edge of the field, sobbing to herself. I walk up beside her and put my arm around her. Her face is frozen in a painful grimace, trembling and unnerved. She points down at the bottom of the ditch where a man is lying face up in the mud, his eyes frozen wide open. I go down there for a closer look. The corpse is covered with flies and mosquitoes. His skin is caramel-colored, and his tattered clothes are those of a Mideast migrant worker. He must have died during the night, I say to Louisa. Sorry you had to see this. Please don't touch him, she says. She motions for me to get away from the terrible specter of the corpse. When I climb out of the ditch, she puts her arms around my waist and pulls me to her. I hug her tightly, feeling her shiver uncontrollably. Without exchanging another word, we walk back to the car arm-in-arm and drive away from the field in heavy silence. As we get back on the road to Calais, we are deadly quiet. The reality of the unfortunate man dying in a ditch far away from his homeland is too much for Louisa to bear. She starts crying again, even harder than before. I pull the car off the road onto the shoulder, leaving the engine to idle and take her in my arms. She moans softly, as if she's hurting inside. The private thoughts that are bouncing around inside her mind gush out one sobbing confession. I don't ever want to die alone, she says. You're not dying as long as I'm breathing. Just in case it ever happens. Don't leave me to do it on my own. I want to have a loved one to be there with me. Promise. I promise. Oh, come on. Enough crying, please. I want to go home. I don't think I can go on. Yes, you can. You said you wanted to come with me. We've made it this far. We're not going back without finding Lev and getting him out of this place. I think he's in one of the camps around here. We're close now. Come on, my love. Let's keep going. Okay, says Louisa with a long sigh. She pauses for a moment to collect her thoughts. I'm sorry, she whispers, for being so weak. You're so strong, I say. My stomach is churning too, but we must go on. I pull the car out on the road again though everything seems darker and more threatening. Here we go, I mumble with a heavy heart. I privately wonder if we're really ever going to find Lev. Fortunately, just then, I spot a large campfire through the trees of a thick forest, pull the car over and park. Hand in hand, we start our search for Lev in this part of the jungle. Chapter 51. As we walk along a muddy road through massive trees that filter out the day's last sunlight, it's hard to believe that we are only a few miles from a modern European city. Judging by the tracks on the ground, a small bulldozer has carved out that narrow road, clearing away fallen branches so that pickup trucks can roll through the forest and reach the refugees with supplies. Campfire blazing in a clearing up ahead guides us toward the first of the camps that are tucked away in the forest. The leafy canopy of pines and elms above our heads has turned the sky pitch black creating a Kafkaesque landscape. Flames licking sparks upwards from the campfire magnify the atmosphere of doom and hell on Earth. As we come up to the lean-to shacks and patched huts that make up the village, we see clusters of sub-Saharan Africans, North Africans, Afghans, and Middle Easterners. They are mostly young men looking abandoned by their home countries. Desperation written all over their solemn faces Many are warming themselves around the crackling campfire. Some are cooking on little gas stoves that must have been donated by the local authorities. Others are lying on cardboard beds, eyes open, exhausted by the burden of their uncertain futures. The few women and children in the camp are sitting in a tight circle on a plastic tarp spread on the ground, clinging to one another as if the apocalypse is lurking somewhere out of sight in the surrounding darkness. No one pays much attention to us as we walk through the camp, looking for Lev in a sea of dark grim faces. Louisa stares wide-eyed at all the refugees, bewildered by her first encounter with this tidal wave of human misery. She's speechless. But I can read all the questions bubbling up and reverberating behind her incredulous expression. I wish I could give her solid answers. How could this happen in the middle of Europe People don't know about it, or if they do, even care. How come this is not front page news every day? Why are normal people not enraged about all this suffering around the corner from their homes? Where is the United Nations? Where is the Red Cross? Where are all those other humanitarian organizations? How can we let people live in these conditions? Who is really helping these lost souls? Luisa turns to me, narrowing her eyes, unable to speak, deflated and disheartened. I don't have the answers, I say. No one does. In respectful silence, we leave the camp behind and continue down the forest road toward an even larger campfire in a clearing a few hundred yards away. Under a patch of night sky, I stop and take Luisa into my arms, trying to explain the inexplicable. These people are us, I tell her. This is humanity, our humanity. We are all part of the problem. We are all responsible. We can land men on the moon and annihilate each other with nuclear bombs. We are beautiful and monstrous. Inspiring and shameful. Generous and treacherous. We're human. We can't change human nature. We kiss under the starlight. But we can make a difference, I whisper. One person at a time. I firmly believe that. It's why we're here and looking for Lev. We are making a difference, you and I, together. She's overwhelmed and moved to tears. I hold her tight. I understand, I say. How hard it is to be a witness to all this agony and go on with our lives, pretending as if nothing had happened. Is it a bad time to tell you how much I love you, she says, drying her eyes, and how much I admire you? It's the other way around. If you weren't my life, I probably wouldn't be here now. I inspire you. Our love is my fuel. It gives me courage. She laughs, that refreshing, innocent laugh of hers so unexpected to hear in the midst of all the hopelessness around us. Taking my hand in hers, she kisses my fingers, then she tugs me forward, having regained her composure. The next camp looks bigger, she says, like it's been here longer. More people too, I say. As we approached, we saw scores of refugees around the campfire. From there, passageways radiated out. Lined by multicolored tents made from all kinds of recovered plastic bags. This camp looked more like a real village with spray painted road signs hung on poles, with primitive arrows pointing us toward Queen Elizabeth Street. Jungle is our home street, or black is not a crime street. One entrepreneur had opened his own little commerce, tagging it Young Afghan Smoke Shop on a shingle above the door. On the tin wall of that pop-up shop was a Banksy stenciled image of Steve Jobs wearing a backpack and carrying a vintage Apple computer, like a refugee on the run. We found the camp's central pathway, called Main Street, and walked along where the most permanent-looking shelter stood. Enticing aromas of spices from around the world rose up from unseen wood stoves. The savory smoke hovered over the shoddy rooftops, mixing with the fog that had seeped into the forest from the English Channel. A gauzy, otherworldly light made the place look post-apocalyptic. It seemed like hundreds of refugees, a kaleidoscope of races and ethnicities, had organized their lives here as if they were the only surviving species of humanity left on Earth after a nuclear holocaust. At the end of Main Street, We come to a large tin shelter where we hear the voices of many people gathered together, talking animatedly, laughing, exchanging stories in a variety of languages. We pause to listen. Divergent voices float upwards as if toward the Tower of Babel itself. Suddenly, I hear Lev's unmistakable baritone speaking in English. I silently gesture to Louisa to follow me. Then I push open the shack's rag door, bow respectively, and quickly find a place for us to sit on the plastic tarp floor. Lev is standing next to a wood stove with a large mug in his left hand, addressing an audience of more than twenty, waving around his bandaged right hand as he makes one of his signature fabled toasts. We are sitting behind him so he doesn't notice me. Somewhere in a forest on an island in the Pacific was a thousand-year-old oak tree, says Lev. One day... The tree got tired of being a thousand years old. A thousand years of loneliness is too much to bear even for a tree. I'm going to change my name from Oak Tree to the Tree of Sadness, announced the oak tree to all his leaves and branches. Nearby, a large family of mice were planning a wedding. Suddenly, the wind came up and pushed heavy clouds over the forest. The clouds got scared and they started to cry. Cold rain fell on the forest. The mice gathered all their belongings and climbed up the trunk of the oak tree. Feeling the little mice, the oak tree warmed up from the inside. He said to his leaves and branches, I'm back into being an oak. I'm not alone anymore. Now I can go on another thousand years. Friends, Lev continued, let's drink to the cold rain that forces the mice and the tree to warm up to one another. These are hard times, but if we stick together and look after one another, we will succeed too. Lev lifts his mug high and drinks down his water in one long gulp. People in the shelter shout out cheers in a dozen languages and raise their mugs, glasses, and plastic cups to Lev. Meanwhile, Lev flips on a portable radio that starts blasting out an old Russian folk tune. People stand, form a circle, put their hands on each other's shoulders swaying together, humming along with the tune. That's when Lev spots me. At first, he's speechless, blinking his eyes to make sure they're working, that I'm not hallucinating. Then his face lights up, and he comes over to me with his arms wide open. Oh, my precious God. Luke, is that you, my friend? I don't believe my eyes. He hugs me warmly, wiping away a tear with his bandaged hand. Is it really you? What are you doing in this godforsaken place? Leova, I say. so happy to find you. Look at you. You're even making toasts. With nothing but water. How did you find me? Marina told me. Ah, Marina. I miss her so much now. How is she? I don't know. Last I spoke to her, she was very worried about Vasya. Do you know where he is? Oh, Vasya. Unexpectedly, Lev breaks down and can't hold back the tears. Vasya, Vasya, he keeps saying. Luisa gently takes Lev's bandaged hand. Hi, Lev. My name is Luisa. I'm Luke's girlfriend. We can talk about it later, no? We need to change this bandage? No, that's nothing, Lev says, wincing in pain but waving her off. So nice to meet you, Louisa. There's not much I can offer you here. You didn't bring any Stoli, did you? You've got nothing but water to drink here. Lev, we came to get you out. We need to move. Move? You're coming with us. Where to? The United States of America. How? We've made all the arrangements, but we don't have much time. Pack your stuff and let's go. Lev is in total disbelief, but he hasn't lost a sense of humor. Pack what stuff, he says. I'm wearing my suitcase.